Please open your Bibles with me to the book of Romans. We'll take up with the verses where we left off. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 6. Excuse me, 5 through 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. The Apostle Paul is writing to the highly diverse church in the ancient city of Rome. The great city, an imperial city, one that has so much exchange of ideas, but also one that was really the epicenter of some of the earliest persecutions of the church. And there was infighting in the church. This was a church doctrinally and culturally divided. And whenever the apostle writes to the people of God there, he has this one wonderful truth that grips his heart, and that is... Doctrine unites Christians. That's his understanding of things. And so here when we come to chapter 8, this is entirely doctrinal. The whole book is. In fact, I would say all 66 books of the Bible are doctrinal. But here very specifically, Paul makes propositions. Hard propositions. Doctrinal propositions. He's trying to convince you of eternal truth. In fact, if I were to give the word doctrine a definition, it would be, at least biblically, eternal truth. And so as we study this together, please know that the apostle is not playing any sort of game to exclude some while including others. Rather, he is preaching the good news of Jesus Christ and his grace to his church so that the church may be one and not several fractured pieces. And so let us read the word of God together. We'll begin in verse 1 and we'll read through verse 8. We'll study verses 5 through 8. This is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free... In Christ Jesus, from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is the word of the Lord. May he give us understanding, give us hearts to be submitted to his holy and revealed will. Let's pray together. O God in heaven, 
we have heard you speak in the reading of the scriptures. We pray that, Lord, you would deal with each of us this morning. That your word would be a light unto our path. Oh, Father, that you would shine into us the revealing power of the gospel of grace that we might review our own souls, that we might give an estimation of our own conduct, our own minds, our own hearts, our own delights. And Lord, I pray also that you would display to us the kindness and the grace of Jesus that saves hostile, unyielding, and unprofitable sinners who lay in the dust of death. Oh, Father, give us life in Christ, we pray. In Jesus' holy name, amen. There are only two types of people in this world, and every one of us belongs to one type or the other. And as I've said this, I know that what I've said is deeply unpopular in the world in which we live. I've given you a very clear and very narrow stereotype. And stereotypes are hard to swallow. And in most cases, stereotypes are at the very least inaccurate and, more often than not, untrue altogether. But... What we have in this statement is what the Apostle Paul has written to the church in Rome. And this is not only Paul's word, but this is the truth that God is teaching to me and to you through the reading of the scriptures this morning. There are two types of people. There are those who are of the flesh... And then there are those who are of the Spirit. And if you read along with me or listened a few moments ago, you will notice that there is no in-between. There's no gray space. There is no DMZ, a line of demarcation where there is some sort of indefinite status. There's nothing like that mentioned here. There's no fence upon which to sit between the sides. Rather, there are those who are of the flesh and those who are of the Spirit. And this morning, if when you've heard this, you think, well, that would never, ever, ever fly in the world in which we live. You're absolutely right. And I want to tell you this. It was equally as shocking in the first century whenever the Apostle Paul wrote this to the church. You're not that unique. Our culture isn't that unique. We all deal with the very same issues of the heart and of the mind and of the affections and of the taste that every person has ever experienced from the moment of the fall till now. And so if this bothers you, well, that's good. You're listening. It bothers me. It ought to bother you. It ought to bother everybody. And it ought to give us at least a moment to give our full attention to this contrast, because that is really what it is. It's a stark contrast. Those who are of the flesh and then those who are of the Spirit. 
and then to scrutinize ourselves and ask the simple question, am I, according to the flesh, or am I, according to the Spirit? And those are our two points this morning. Those of the flesh, those of the Spirit. And so we'll consider those in turn. Most of the time I give you very specific verses for each point. Just simply note, each of the points will be derived from each of the verses. So the first point is verse 5 through 8. Second point, verse 5 through 8. Paul holds each verse in this contrasting tension. And so we're going to pay attention to that. We're going to try to rightly divide these things so that you can have some clarity with which to deal with yourself and to think about your own life before the face of your creator, the God of heaven. Those of the flesh. Verse 5. Your translation, if you're reading in the ESV, may say, for those who live according to the flesh. The original Greek, if we are very wooden with our translation, would read something like, those who are of the flesh. And this is a distinction that I make, not saying that the ESV mistranslates, but rather we can misunderstand the way they translate it. You and I could come to verse 5 and we could read those who live according to the flesh and we can make the assumption that this is about a lifestyle. It's something, some, something has been taken on. It's adopted. And you and I, we live in a world of lifestyles. In fact, I would say we live in the age of the identity of the lifestyle. This is not about lifestyle. No, no, no. This is about who the person is. Not about the lifestyle they live, but it's those who are of the flesh with the idea that a fleshliness is not just what we do, but it is the thing that dominates and describes who we are if we're not in Christ Jesus. Who we are, those who are of the flesh. You may ask the question, well, what is the flesh? And if you've ever read any of the Apostle Paul's writings, which are throughout the New Testament, you've run into Paul talking about this, this idea of the flesh. And in a variety of places, Paul talks about different things regarding the flesh and different aspects of this. And so it's a right thing for us to ask if we're going to read this, and we're making this sharp of a contrast and a distinction, putting people inevitably into one of two categories, one being that of the flesh. You might ask, what is the flesh? What's he talking about? Is he talking just simply about your physicality, your fleshly coexistence within the whole existence of creation and reality? Is it just the material, physical universe within which we live? No, that's not what Paul's talking about. A friend of mine, David Strain, defines this In this context, the word or the phrase the flesh or fleshliness, David Strain defines it as human nature dominated and governed by sin. That's what Paul's talking about. It's not just that you need to be free from the body as if you're a a trapped spirit, but rather it's the condition of the whole of who you are in your nature. It's your mind, your tongue, your will, your ears, the way you touch things, experience things, 
all of it submitted to the governance, the rule of sin or rebellion against God. That's what we think and believe the Apostle Paul is regarding whenever he says the flesh. It's the mind. It's the thoughts. It's the affections. It's the desires, the delights, and the dislikes of a person. It is all the inner workings of the self, if I can put it into terms. And that has a direct relationship in verse 5 to the idea of sin's governing power. But as you continue to read in verse 5, it's not just simply the idea of a fleshliness or a sinfulness or a, excuse me, a sin nature in the person. But rather, he says, those who are of the spirit or of the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. So it's not just your identity. Now we get into something of lifestyle. If you want to go there, there is here the description of what happens in the person. And again, people don't like this because Paul is telling us what they think. He may be telling you what you think. He's regarding your mind. And I'll tell you, I have learned in ministry in marriage, and as a father, that the very last thing that people generally like is for me to tell them what they think. But the Apostle Paul is saying that our minds have a capacity, if we are dominated by sin very naturally, to think, to conceive, to delight in, to desire fleshliness or sinfulness. He says that is what the person who is of the flesh sets their mind on. I do want to speak a little bit about this idea of setting our minds on a thing. This here is a verb that describes the situation. This isn't something that passively happens to the sinner. As if sin is some sort of roving and terrible disease that people are just passing around by the accident of a cough. No, 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 no. A person is presently and actively engaged in a life that pursues in mind, in taste, and in act sin and all the things that come along with it. That's a very stark statement. It's a statement that basically means that the mind of a person apart from Jesus is dominated willfully And participates in the soul's rebellion against God. And you may ask the question. Can we flesh out a little bit of what a fleshly mind would be set on? Does the Bible tell us exactly what this is speaking to? I mean, pastor, we've heard you already. That's nice and good. And I'll say, yeah, Paul explains himself in another place. If you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 5. And here again you have the context, or the contrast, if you will, of a person who is of the flesh and a person who is of the spirit. There held Galatians 5, 19 through 23. We're going to read 19 through 21. And we read about the works of the flesh. 
Now the works of the flesh are evident, Paul says. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That's what he's talking about. That's what he's getting at. And why is this such a significant thing? Well, it's because of what he continues to say there in verse 21. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is significant. And it ought to be a thing that, well, gives us a point to stop, maybe tremble, to ask ourselves questions about who we are and where we are and the things that we do. That was a sweeping paragraph of acts of which I think I can generally say that those who are without faith in Jesus commit regularly and likewise very many of those who proclaim faith in Jesus regularly struggle with. So what's Paul's point? Well, it's this. That if you're not in Christ, if you're not in the Spirit or of the Spirit, if you're of the flesh, dominated by sin, that this is true. That every thought and every affection has been taken captive to the acts or pursuit of sin and sinfulness. The problem is not just in part. The problem is total. And it is staggering. And it ought to make us tremble. You go on and we continue to read in verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. You and I, we live in a world, we live in a culture that, again, is not that very different from the ancient world. It's not contextually, well, I would say, yeah, by some years, a couple thousand at least, uh, separated from the original uh, context. But the heart of every man, woman, and child, not that different from the ancient world, it's not that staggering to understand this and to follow along with it. You and I live in a context and in a world where people want what they want, don't we? That's not unique to a Western culture. That's just commonplace in all society. We live in a world that fears missing out. We live in a world that wants our best life now. Uh, We live in a world where people entertain silly and thoughtless statements like your own truth. Your truth may be in direct opposition and contradiction to my truth and that doesn't matter because whatever truth is it's whatever you decide it to be and that then takes truth and makes it nothing and it well brings truth down to the level of opinions and opinions as you well know often contrast with others conflict with others and show themselves to be absolutely useless 
And sometimes people will convince themselves that their lifestyle or their own sense of identity, whatever it is, if it's something they like, they delight in, that it's going to be the greatest blessing for themselves. Have you ever experienced that? We can list off of a thousand different things in the world in which we live where people have set their mind on what they delight, on the things they want, the things that affirm themselves, and they'll say, this relationship is what is best for me, even though the Bible says opposite. This is going to be most happy, most wonderful, and most life-giving for me, what I decide right now for myself. That's what is going to be best for me. Whatever I delight in, whatever I want, whoever I want to be with, whatever I want to say, whatever I want to take into my body, whatever I want to engage in, whatever I want to bow a knee to, whatever it is, whatever it is, as long as I like it, as long as I enjoy it, as long as I think it affirms me, I'm going to have my best life now. And it's going to be a life worth living. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here. It's not that he conducts an argument with them. He just informs us all of a truth. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. It's not life. And it's not a life that is a thing that results from all of the different fleshly things that we've pursued Why am I leaving this vague and not calling names to names on all sorts of different lifestyles and sinful pursuits that people have? And it's well because of this. You probably have some, just as I do, that are hard to even define, but you know exactly what I mean whenever I speak about things that you think are best for you, but the Bible says will destroy you. Paul says to set the mind on the flesh is death. And this is a painful, wild, wonderful truth that we absolutely need to be faced with. That there are some things that are deadly for us. And there are some things that are life for us. And they are not very often things that derive from our own hearts but they're things that derive from the heart of God. There aren't six different options. This is not a buffet. The things that are of the mind, of the flesh, if they are things that derive from a sinful heart, they are death. It's not our own truth. It's cold. It's lifeless. And ultimately, it's dead. And that's not popular. And you probably don't like that. And you're probably thinking, wow, I came to church this morning and I wanted to be encouraged, but boy, this pastor is swinging a bat and it seems like he's hitting me. But friends, I haven't said your name. These aren't my words. If you're offended, the thing you're most offended at is the basic reading of Scripture. I didn't say it's death. The Bible said it's death. And it's a thing that you and me absolutely have to struggle with and fight with in ourselves and examine ourselves by and scrutinize our souls 
If you don't like this testimony, if this is a thing that frightens you, why? Why does it bother you? Is it where you find yourself? Is that where you are this morning? In verse 7 and 8, Paul goes on and he describes the state of the person who is of the flesh or of a life lived in pursuit of sin before the face of God. How does this actually function spiritually before the God of heaven? So look at verse 7 with me. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Hostility. That's how it's described. And very often you and I have probably encountered people who will say things like this. I really respect religious people. I have many friends and they're from many different faith traditions or maybe even I really respect Christians and I respect your church and I really like you and I have good friends that are Christians and it's all good for them and I respect them but I just don't believe in their God or the God of the Bible. They will unflinchingly deny Christ And they will claim a middle position. What's good for you is good for you, but it's not simply good for me. It's just not what I want to do, not how I want to live my life. The language of agnosticism comes into play and people pretend and play the game that agnosticism is ultimately a middle view, a place of safety, this gray, queasy spot where you have some conception that there could be a God. But whenever it comes to the God of the Bible who has spoken in 66 books over thousands of years to millions of people, That that is worth denying, but there could be a God out there, possibly. I can conceive of it. I'm comfortable with the fact that there could be a divine, there could be a creator, there could be something. But I'm just going to cover my eyes, leaving my ears open and pretend like I haven't seen or heard or have any real knowledge that he exists. And that is absolutely false, is what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying that to pretend... To be in a neutral place, to engage with the mind and the soul and the things of sin and to pursue the things that stand in opposition to the word of God, he calls it hostility. There's not a middle ground. There still are two categories. There are not three Because to be a person to say these things, you have to do a very fundamental thing. And that is deny clear truth about God. It's available and accessible. It's not hidden. It's proclaimed. It's published on pages of books and spoken from the tongues, not just of preachers, but also of parishioners, the people of God with a loud voice. It shouted from every leaf, every flower, every mountaintop, the depths of the sea. From every cry of every baby, the Lord establishes strength in the face of his foes. 
the starry host above, to deny God and to live a life pursuing the things that you delight in that says I'm the center of the universe and to downplay the reality of God is hostility toward him. There's not a middle place. It's not only hostility. It's the experience of the fleshly person before the God of heaven, but also insubordination. That's the second thing that we read there in verse 7. Hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law. Now again, you're going to read ahead and you're going to say, well, of course, does not submit to God's law. And then indeed it cannot. The comment about potentiality or the ability of a person to do a thing you're going to say well they can't even do it we're getting there but the insubordination's willful that's what Paul's saying does not will not submit to the will of God will not do what God requires will not honor him will not answer the call to worship will not bow a knee to him will not do what he would delight in. In fact, will do the very things that God tells us never to do. And you say, I don't know, Pastor, I think there's a middle ground. Just look at the world around you and listen to the things that are being said by people, our society, by our media, the things that we write, the things that we sing, the way that we paint things. All of these things evidence the reality of a mind and a heart that simply not only is in opposition to God, but actively actively in insubordination against his will, saying, God, you will not direct my life, my thinking, the way I live. You will not be part of what I'm doing. Paul says that that is what the mind set on the flesh is engaged in. And thirdly, this moral inability Really, in in two different ways. We've already read that there is the willfulness of the heart not to do what God would have us to do in the flesh. But also the inability, indeed it cannot, that there is a condition in the flesh, in the person, in the mind, that we have lost the capacity to think the thoughts of God after him and to submit to him if we are people who remain in the flesh apart from Jesus Christ. Paul even doubles down in verse 8. Very clearly, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Does that bother you? What does this mean? Well, it means that if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, and you think that the way that you're living is sort of in the middle, You're not as far and as bad as some people. You're not an atheist after all. With a crusade against the Bible. You're not an anti-theist. You're not persecuting the Christian church. But you're certainly not a Christian. Paul is saying that you're not in a safe place. He's saying to you that you may have fooled yourself into thinking that where you are before the face of God is much different than where you actually are. And he's saying, friend, 
view that and deal with it and know that there isn't security there. Feel the weight of that danger. Feel the weight of what that actually means to the God of heaven. And I would call to you and simply say, do not be pleased with that and comfortable with that. And don't put up a place there where you feel like you can just remain. And to my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, those who proclaim faith in Jesus Christ, yet who live engaged in lifestyles where you're somewhere in the gray. And you're doing fleshly things and you're not pursuing your sin to kill it. And you're just playing fast and loose with the things of your life. It doesn't matter. It's just in the middle. These things don't ultimately have any role between me and my God and the way I relate to him. Let me simply say to you, quit playing games. It's of the flesh or it's of the spirit. They're not two in the same thing together. No, it can't be. There's no mixture. You're a Christian in Christ, through his grace, pursuing sin to kill it and to live in righteousness after him, or you are not, and if you're not, you ought to be afraid. And you say, Pastor, I came to church this morning and I wanted encouragement, but here you are, you're unseating my faith. Let me say this, if that shakes your faith, you may have never had it in the beginning. If it bothers you to read this and to hear this, then Paul's writing is still effective And I want to encourage you to lean into that discomfort and run to Christ. Don't be comfortable in a life lived in the pursuit, both mind, body, and soul, of fleshly and sinful living, even if you think it's what affirms me most. And then, of course... It's a two-point sermon. This is, of course, the sermon of contrast. We've spoken about the person who is of the flesh, and then now there are those who are of the Spirit. And so we go back to verse 5, because this is how Paul organizes each of these verses. It's like a seesaw. The first portion, regarding those who have set their minds on the things of the flesh... Halfway through verse 5, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Those who are of the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. He's talking to Christians, to saved people to people who have made a profession of faith, people who have been baptized, people who do attend church, people who are in Bible studies. And he's saying simply this, you are called to live differently. You're called to be different, to have your mind in a different place. Whenever the Bible speaks of these things, it simply uses the language of new birth, new creation. And so, brother, sister, in Christ, let me simply say to you, if you've been in a middle place, in a place of grayness, on attempting to sit on fences and to play fast and loose and to flirt with sin and to have a life that really is engaged after your own design, let me say this, you are called to another thing entirely and you belong to someone else who demands it of you.
It's not just a lifestyle of those who are of the Spirit, but it is absolutely who you are in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul speaks about the Christian's experience of the Holy Spirit, that he is an indwelling deity in us, a deposit that guarantees our salvation. That's how the Holy Spirit is discussed and described in the experience of the Christian. That means, in essence, you're never alone. You're never alone as a Christian. You're always attended by the paraclete, the helper, the advocate, the friend. In your good moments and in your bad moments. The Apostle Paul doesn't only say that you are of the Spirit, but rather that you are one that sets their mind on the things of the Spirit. And again, this is present and active. This is what you do now. This is how you engage your spiritual life. It's not just a thing that happens to you because of who you are. But as a Christian, you must make decisions for how you will live. The Bible is replete, full of the teaching of how we are to live. That's what it is all the time teaching us as Christians. And it is not up to just anything we would delight, but rather that we would live after the delights of God. And that we fight the battle in our minds and in our souls and in the things that we like to simply say, no, I will not do this. I will live after him. There has never been a Christian that has not been called to battle within themselves. And there has never been a Christian who's alone in that battle. We are of the Spirit And called to set our minds on the Spirit and to pursue it with absolute and utter devotion. So that every thought is captive to the things of God. Well, what are the things of the Spirit? Galatians 5, again. The tension. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. These are just a few of the things that Christians engage in their minds and in their hearts. A few of the things that they set their minds to. But I just invite any Christian in the room that's kept all of these and pursued all of these with perfection to raise their hands. It's what you're called to, Christian. It's different from who you once were, Christian. It's what it is to live a life that is not dominated by sin, but rather dominated by the love of God. And the Apostle Paul continues on, and in verse 6, he says that this is what? Life and peace. To set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. And I want to tell you, everybody in the room, simply this wonderful fact, if you want a life worth living, it will only be found in God. It won't be found in 
a pursuit of ten different things that gratify the things that you like, your desires, the way you were made, your own truths, but rather a life lived in the light of the truth of the Scriptures. It's as simple as that. That's what's life-giving. There is an author of all life, and he is the creator of the universe. Life didn't just happen. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a cosmic sneeze that resulted in life springing up from, well, a whole bunch of gathered other things that were from other things where we don't know where they actually came from, but rather the power of God displayed in the creative act. Life and peace. Where are we going to find life? We're only going to find it in a life lived after God. With our hearts, our minds taken captive to these wonderful methods and fruits of the Spirit that are blessings to everybody. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Nobody says these things aren't good. There's no society on earth so wicked that wouldn't say that's what they want of their citizens. Or that's what will flourish and bless the most people. And this is what every Christian is called to do in the power of the Holy Spirit. You go on and you might think, well, verses 7 and 8, they don't really say anything about the Christian's life uh, before God. They only say things about uh, the ones who are of the flesh and their being before the face of God. It was deeply uncomfortable and it was quite hard to hear. What about the Christian? How does that person live before the face of God? The one who's of the Spirit, how do they experience it? Well, there's one word that is sufficient for it all and it's there in verse 6. It's not just life, but it's peace. Peace with God. And I think sometimes we can have this idea of peace where we just get away from all of the loudness of life. And there's a lot of loudness. Maybe you go on a hike, you go and you spend time alone, you have a retreat, you have a vacation, and you're just in a quiet place to stop and to stay still, right? But here, the person in the Spirit living a life after God in Jesus Christ finds peace with a God who, apart from his grace, they were hostile to and at war with. This isn't peace in the abstract. This is peace in the particular. A person that is apart from the grace of Jesus Christ has made themselves an enemy of God and they are accountable to his hand of justice. Have you ever had someone pursue you for the things that you've done? Well, that is what it is to be in a life apart from the love of Christ. It is to be at odds with God and accountable to his justice and constant pursuit of you. But in Christ and in the Spirit, the life of the Christian is described as peace with God. A stillness where you are in his embrace and his hand is upon you and not against you where you're invited to his table and seated next to his children and he feeds you good things and gives you good drink and he clothes you and blesses you and speaks sweetly to you and cares for you in times of distress and binds you up whenever you are broken and sets you on feet whenever you have fallen 
and pitches roofs over you to defend you against the storms and the chaos of this life. He cares for you. He cares for you. He cares for you. And that is the peace that the Christian enjoys with God. And you may say, well, pastor, I understand that. But I also remember just a few moments ago, it wasn't you, just as you told me. It was the scriptures, just as I read and just as I heard, that told me very sincerely that apart from God and apart from a life lived in submission to the Spirit, that I'm hostile to God, that I can't submit to God's law. Indeed, I can't do it, and I can't please God. What do I do now? The Bible's very clear here that you cannot save yourself. The Bible is equally and most profoundly clear that the only remedy, the only help, the only possibility for living a life of peace with God is through faith in Jesus Christ. It is freely offered. And you say, well, wouldn't that please God? Well, friend, it's not what you've done that pleases God when you have faith in Christ. It is what Jesus has done for you. He's freely offered to you. It doesn't require you to clean yourself up. It doesn't require you to live a good life. It doesn't require you to even be comfortable in your own skin, but rather that you put faith in the one who was pierced for you. And you say, yes, I'll hide myself in Christ. Yeah, I'll cling to him. Yeah, I'll look to him. He's my savior. Because if he isn't, I have no hope without him. And I invite you to that this morning, friends. And I warn you as the last word. There's no in-between There is a life given to the flesh or a life in the spirit of Christ. Where are you? Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures and the blinding clarity that they offer to us. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to have heard your word and heed it. Help us to do the things that your word commands, O Lord. Help us to cling to Christ. Help us to run from our own desires, our own delights. Lord, if we are offended this morning, may it be the offense of the gospel. Our Father in heaven, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.